Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Welcome everyone and thank you for joining us for our 2020 Genocide Memorial Day podcast series. Today I'm really delighted to have joining us Professor Saeed Khan from the US. I'd like to ask him to introduce himself a little bit more in more detail and uh, we can begin our conversation based in part around his presentation in London this year in January at uh, the IHRC Genocide Memorial Day. Please introduce yourself and all right, Bismillah alaikum everyone, and thank you Arzu for having me on. Um, I'm Saeed Khan. Uh, I'm a senior lecturer in Near East and Asian Studies at Wayne State University, which is in Detroit, Michigan. And uh, I'm also a fellow at uh, Wayne State Center for the Study of Citizenship. And more recently, uh, I am now serving as the director of the Department of Global Studies. Most of my research interest focuses on uh, looking at the intellectual history of Muslim communities uh, living in the West uh, after 9-11 uh, because there was a, uh, a glaring need for understanding and for uh, correcting the narrative about Muslim Americans. I co-founded the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding, uh, ISPU which is a think tank that focuses on social and domestic policy issues uh, for the Muslim American community and is now uh, essentially the leading uh, research gatherer of statistics and other empirical evidence about the Muslim American community. Uh, one of the areas that we really highlight uh, there is looking at voting trends, looking at levels of civic and political engagement, but at the same time, there is examination of, uh, for example, marriage and divorce rates, uh, looking at how uh, Muslim Americans navigate uh, a society that is changing and, in fact, is going through some very uh, tumultuous and challenging changes as it moves to become a society that is majority-minority uh, within a generation. And we see how, particularly with President Trump, and uh, his, uh, his base of support, that they uh, tend to have the kind of xenophobia, the kind of nativism, which is expressed not only through Islamophobia, but through anti-Semitism, uh, anti-women, anti-LGBTQ. Uh, basically, it seems as though they're anti-anybody that's not white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, heterosexual male. Well, that's actually quite a good starting point in the conversation that we're to this project, which essentially was not just about memorializing genocides that have happened, but actually trying to put out conversations, resources, uh, educational materials that look at ways of preventing further genocides. And of course, part of that is understanding how they happened. We often find that there's a lot of decontextualized commemoration. So it's commemorative Srebrenica as a genocide, but to the extent that there's not even in the context of life. In opposing sides to each other, why would people kill? Never mind the fact that this was set within the genocidal war, which was much longer. We have obviously commemorations around the Holocaust, but again, it's as a, a past thing and a done deed. And then conversations about anti Semitism are instrumentalized in different ways. I just wondered, in terms of what you were talking about uh, at your presentation in London, how you felt the sort of political landscape, thinking about the states, or what? 
when it comes to these conversations about genocide, because they are talked about frequently, whether you think there is a kind of trajectory that we can serious at a political level to tackle this as a phenomenon of the modern era, whether it's a case of instrumentalizing these narratives or a bit of both, how would you sort of place yourself in Trump's America? Well, there's, there's a tremendous chasm between the way that genocide is uh, is discussed, deliberated, debated in civil society, and the way that it is done by state actors. Uh, one thing that is incredibly important to recognize about genocide at the state level is the way that how certain states immunize themselves, not only from the prosecution of genocide, where in some cases they most certainly have enough violations that it would at least warrant uh, a, a trial and uh, an investigation. In the case of the United States, for example, uh, the current Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, uh, is refusing visas to uh, investigators of the international criminal courts to even come to the United States and uh, investigate, uh, for example, uh, what's happening at the borders, the mistreatment and the abuse of children and the, uh, the terrible splitting apart of families that's occurring there as people coming in from the southern border seeking asylum, seeking refugee status. Uh, at the same time, the United States also conveniently has uh, exempted itself from uh, the ICC. So uh, the leading body uh, on the international level that would be in the position to investigate and perhaps bring charges and prosecute genocide some of the largest powers uh, are simply, as a matter of procedure, exempt from that. Those who even are, in fact, signatories to members of the ICC uh, also have ways to immunize themselves uh, by weaponizing uh, genocide. And then we've seen in the recent past examples where the same individual states that have set the ground rules for genocide will conveniently decide whether or not they want to invoke genocide because of all the responsibilities that it brings with them. And uh, perhaps the most glaring example of this was in Rwanda in 1994, as well as in Darfur in 2007. Because according to the genocide conventions, those countries which uh, are not only signatories to the convention, but then declare that it is in fact a genocide, must act to try to remove the genocide, uh, must act to try to also prevent any further genocide from acting. So this then becomes a vexing issue if countries uh, don't want to allocate the resources or for whatever other policy reasons they have, it might be matters of race, it might be matters of embarrassment because of their com uh, complicity explicitly or implicitly with the uh, uh, those who are committing genocide they may choose not to go ahead and act. As far as uh, with the commemoration of Genocide Memorial Day uh, particularly, what we find happening uh, today is actually uh, something that began about 105 years ago when it came to the Armenian issue uh, during World War I. The declaration or the efforts in the United States at least to declare uh, uh, a genocide for the treatment of the Armenians at the hands of the Ottoman Empire has been essentially a ping-pong match going back and forth politicized uh, with the Armenian-American community 
uh, being very vociferous and energetic in its efforts to lobby Congress to have it declared uh, a genocide. And yet at the same time, uh, in 2015, on the 100th anniversary, which one would argue would be probably the closest that one would come to seeing something like this. After all, other countries like France uh, went ahead and declared that the denial of uh, what happened to the Armenians to be a genocide is in fact a criminal offense. Well, in 2015, for political reasons as well as for foreign policy reasons, because of Turkey's uh, membership in the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, the United States did not want to offend a fellow NATO ally. Now, it seems as though with the current Trump administration and his decisions to uh, allow President Erdogan to, in effect, clear out the Kurdish population from a large bandwidth of land in northern Syria, the U.S. Congress, which is uh, a majority Democratic Party Congress, and the U.S. Senate, which is majority Republican, uh, decided that they needed to act, that this was now uh, too much of an egregious act by Erdogan that a message needed to be sent, not only to Ankara, but also to what they saw as the capitulation by Trump himself. So the U.S. Congress, wasting no time and sparing no effort to try to uh, show Trump in a negative light, uh, which again is not very difficult to do, uh, decided then to pass a, a resolution uh, now declaring that what happened 104 years ago was in fact a genocide. That was also uh, attempted in the U.S. Senate, but it was blocked by uh, one senator, uh, Lindsey Graham from South Carolina, who is a very passionate supporter of the president now, and at the same time, after speaking with President Erdogan when uh, the Turkish president was visiting uh, Washington uh, several weeks ago, he was satisfied with uh, the conversation, with the justification, and decided then to revoke uh, his support for such a resolution. So in essence, what we then find with genocide at the, at the highest levels is how it has become politicized, uh, and at the same time how the victims of genocide become weaponized within this larger, uh, both domestic political landscape as well as the geopolitical landscape involving various actors. So there was a disjuncture in the U.S. between the political understanding of slash instrumentalization of genocide and civil society understanding. What is, what is the particular focus, if there is only one? civil society, or are there pressures as well within civil society with regard to genocide memorialization, I guess, but then also just in terms of um, whether it's talking about what's happening at the border or talking about something that's happening in another country, or historically what's happened in America, what kind of welfare projects or programs exist at the civil society? I know it's a huge arena, but... Sure, there's two levels. I mean, one is where you find uh, an affected group, uh, for example, the Armenians, uh, one could argue the Palestinian diaspora in America um, has uh, certainly uh, made the effort to frame the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as being one of genocide, that uh, according to the various uh, stages of genocide uh, that have been enumerated, 
that the characteristics are there. And this is done uh, in the absence of uh, those institutions, those organizations, and those states who are uh, arguably in a better position or are obligated to make those determinations. So that is being done by the affected groups. Uh, for them, it is a matter of memory. For them, it's something very personal. It is very familial. And then there's also those uh, aspects of civil society when it comes to NGOs, when it comes to uh, interest groups, advocacy groups, who see this as being uh, a misrepresentation of the values that are espoused by the societies in which they live. And in many ways, this is a form of citizen justice where they then feel it is their obligation in lieu of the state doing its job to go ahead then and not only bear witness, but to then go ahead and uh, in real time make the case for genocide. Now we see that this is happening uh, particularly in the United States now uh, in several different arenas, whether it is uh, the Uyghur in Xinjiang, whether it is the Rohingya uh, in Myanmar, uh, whether it is the Palestinians uh, in, uh, in the Middle East, uh, we find that these are now being uh, invoked within the register uh, and within the architecture of genocide. And so there's a certain emboldenment that is occurring uh, in order to raise the attention on the world stage and also uh, ostensibly to raise the attention uh, for state actors and for the necessary institutions. And part of it, as you had mentioned before, was given the inaction at Srebrenica, given the inaction when it came to Rwanda, given the inaction when it came to Darfur. These are ones that have occurred within a generation, and yet at the same time we see in, in real time uh, being privy to what is happening now. Uh, the, the advancements of technology and social media in amplifying the message and the advocacy uh, seems to have a lot to do with uh, how frequently uh, these issues are now being framed as, as genocide. Is there some kind of a Unified theme seems to be quite whether it's a, a simplification, but some kind of um, connective thinking across these different causes that you've mentioned. Uh, this is not sort of critique as an inquiry from one side. Um, certainly, on this side of the Atlantic, we tend to have a lot of disjointed ways in that everything operates in its own silo. Um, but not only that, maybe a second question is whether there is any kind of uh, connection out here, particularly with indigenous groups. There's definitely a correlation between those who are the vanguard of advocacy on the issue of genocide happening now and those who will take a look at American history uh, with a rather jaundiced eye. Uh, there is no coincidence uh, that those who are suing for some kind of recourse for the Uyghur, for the Rohingya, uh, for even now uh, the, uh, uh, the Indians in Kashmir uh, and elsewhere, uh, that they will be linking it to the treatment or the mistreatment of the Native American, of indigenous people. And so recognizing that America certainly has uh, 
less of an exalted history than those who traffic in American exceptionalism. Uh, for them, uh, there is either a, uh, an, unintention, uh, an unintentional or a deliberate tone deafness uh, that they will not see uh, in their own nation's history what happened to the Native Americans, what arguably even happened to uh, the, the slaves as being a form of genocide. And, and part of it, quite frankly, uh, is, uh, is based on racism. Uh, there have been uh, some rather brutal episodes uh, of late that, for whatever reason, uh, have not been branded uh, genocide even by those who seem to be the most, this is the term of today, woke, when it comes to uh, their level of social justice awareness. I'm thinking of uh, Central African Republic, for example. Uh, I don't know if that's a matter of racism. I don't know if it's a matter that the kind of media attention wasn't as, uh, as intense there for people to have that kind of awareness. But it seems to me that those who are in the know get to that point because they will actively seek the information that is needed. In terms of then this project of momentum towards, which is, I think, we could largely agree, mainly headed by civil society in terms of genocide prevention, um, well, halting ongoing genocides and then preventing future genocides. I mean, you, you, as you said, you studied a lot and you read a lot about civic engagement, both in the sense of the US and utilizing the political structures there. What would you say are the examples that already exist or ways forward national citizen justice media in this particular case. US political mechanisms, but maybe even wider American to international mechanisms, basically all civil society and Well again, I think we find that uh, particularly in the case of Muslim Americans, uh, they recognize how uh, interconnected uh, genocide and uh, mass killings and ethnic cleansings are. They recognize that if there is going to be a matter of raising the awareness, that it cannot be in a silo of only those which affect uh, Muslim communities. Uh, that is incredibly myopic and, quite frankly, uh, uh, very un-Islamic uh, in the sense of only uh, looking for recourse and justice uh, for one's own community without recognizing that uh, the Ummah can, in fact, in these matters, uh, be defined uh, as, as the entire world. So we find then that, uh, that the spirit of social justice warrioring, I suppose is how we can frame it, is now something that particularly uh, a lot of young Muslim Americans find themselves engaged in. And so they will go outside the community and they will uh, almost organically make those connections with other uh, demographic groups, uh, those who seem to have a longer history uh, and seem to be better equipped with the resources uh, to uh, fight uh, battles at this scale and at this scope. At the same time, the older generation, uh, as a result of 9-11, has uh, had its own, if you will, baptism by fire of understanding the need to build coalitions, uh, first on uh, the issues of civil rights and civil liberties, but then recognizing how genocide is really the most uh, extreme example of the abrogation of civil rights and civil liberties. And so 
recognizing that what may be happening half a world away uh, is something that always exists as a specter within their own communities. And the last three years uh, under uh, the Trump administration has created a tremendous level of consternation about what possibly could be uh, further violations of their rights. And the fact that now there are so many examples of genocide that are occurring not just in authoritarian or totalitarian regimes, but in uh, actual democracies, their learning curve is now becoming something on the lines of understanding uh, the end of the Weimar Republic in the 1930s. Uh, Hitler didn't uh, storm the, uh, the Reichstag, he was elected. And now that people are recognizing that this is how democracies die and how fascism uh, grows and how the genocide could occur, they're seeing that in real time in India. And of course, given the fact that many Muslim Americans who have the resources and uh, the kind of bandwidth uh, for awareness in America are in fact from the Indian subcontinent, it resonates very deeply with them and has then evoked uh, a strong response for them to want to do something. So you kind of like preempted my next question, which is actually about this understanding of how democracies die and how, how you end up with... But um, I just wondered how much of that, that um, understanding is being applied to the internal scenario of America. There's certainly from outside of the time of the Muslim ban, there was a lot of commentary from this side of the pond saying, well, you know, sounds very familiar. You've got, uh, this is not even new, it's laid upon, you know, several different uh, layers of uh, securitization and different laws, Patriot Act, etc., NDAA, that have already effectively expelled the Muslim subject if you want to take us like, out of uh, not just the body politic, the law as well. Is that a kind of uh, prevailing understanding at the level of civil society, per se, or Muslim civil society, or civil society, or is there still uh, resistance to that idea, or genuine proper critique of that idea with regard to the U.S. situation? The U.S. situation changed dramatically after 9-11, and it changed in two ways. One, Muslim Americans hearing a rhetoric that was directed against them in tones volumes and uh, in themes that they'd never heard before. The idea of people actually talking about concentration camps, talking about mass deportations, uh, talking about uh, denaturalization, uh, removing citizenship, and some of these things which in fact are happening. But the most resonant uh, was probably uh, something from America's World War II past. The U.S. Supreme Court and uh, certain Supreme Court decisions roll off the proverbial tongue in, in uh, the American discourse uh, as people can uh, name their own children. So Roe versus Wade means something. Uh, the Brown versus Board of Education case means something. And Muslim Americans, uh, after 9-11, uh, became very familiar, probably now the most uh, familiar case for them is a case called Korematsu versus the United States, which had to do with a Japanese uh, American citizen who was interned in uh, a concentration camp in Manzanar uh, during World War II uh, by executive order by President Franklin Roosevelt, 
because of the fear of Japanese Americans being either dual loyalists, single loyalists to the emperor, or in fact just simply being collaborators. Uh, Korematsu uh, sued the government, and in 1944, the U.S. Supreme Court sided with the government, uh, which means that Korematsu is still valid law. There is nothing that has declared the president's invocation of a suspect group of Americans to be free of the possibility of internment, which of course then means that the due process rights, which are considered to be so sacrosanct to the American citizen, uh, can simply be taken away at the whims of a president. And tying that to the more recent U.S. Supreme Court decisions over the travel bans, we see the level of deference that not only the courts, uh, but also the legislature, and through its interpretation, the Constitution, gives the executive branch to essentially make those decisions by him or herself. Now, in an optimal and an ideal situation, I suppose, where people are supposed to be sane and reasonable, uh, the system is supposed to work. But that is placing far too much faith uh, into the executive branch. Uh, and we have seen time and time again, on both sides of the political aisle, uh, the ease by which even the opposing party will become supine to the president, to the point where then it doesn't really have to take something as drastic and dramatic as an actual dictator. The pseudo-dictator is arguably far more dangerous because it gives the pretense of legitimacy of democracy that the institutions of democracy are still intact. Uh, the presidency, the Congress, the Supreme Court, they're just simply not being used properly. And that frightens a lot of people, including Muslim Americans. Would you say then maybe America is a warning to the rest of the world, or are we, do you see what's happening perhaps in many parts of Europe as well, given shifts in Australia, other uh, westernized, but not necessarily western settings, as uh, on the par of the US there in the same areas? We often talk about the rise of fascism as a global trend, but I don't know whether you agree with that kind. I mean, if, if, if history has taught us anything, that there, there certainly was a chain reaction the 1920s to the 1930s. Uh, fascism began in uh, Italy with Mussolini. It spreads uh, Germany, then uh, has it uh, by 1933. Uh, Spain has it by 1936, and Portugal as well. Uh, so uh, I'll leave it to scholars to debate whether that was spreading like wildfire or not, but clearly you have at least four major countries. And let's be honest, even here in the UK in the 1930s, you had Oswald Moxley, and uh, many, including uh, a monarch who abdicated the throne, who was at least sympathetic to uh, the, the Germans uh, when it came to the Duke of Windsor, Edward VIII. Uh, we're living through a moment, it seems, in, in world history, where more than a few countries and their populations seem to be willing to um, cede 
democracy for a perception of stability. And we can say that that's in part due to globalization, uh, that uh, there's a decentralization that technology and uh, uh, mass communication has caused. Uh, people now feel as though they're adrift without the kinds of anchors that the nation state used to provide for better or worse. And uh, it seems as though they are gravitating more and more toward these authoritarian charismatic figures who seem to speak at a, uh, a particular level of vernacular that appeals to them, that provides them with a sense of confidence, particularly if they happen to be the dominant and the majority uh, demographic group within that, uh, that society. Uh, for them, uh, it is seen as uh, a reaffirmation, it is seen as a revalidation, it is seen as a recalibration uh, of uh, the whole idea of globalization by pushing back on it with uh, a more robust sense of national identity, which then is nationalism, which is then hyper-nationalism, which then becomes jingoism, which then becomes fascism. And so whether that is the uh, neo-Ottomanism in Turkey uh, or the kind of Hindutva uh, extremism in India, uh, we see spasms of this in the Philippines with Duterte, Certainly, as Israel moves more and more toward its uh, self-definition of being a Jewish state, this kind of ethno-nationalism, uh, the United States, again, as uh, minority populations are gaining on the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant uh, majority, uh, the uh, diffidence of belonging to a supranational uh, entity like the European Union it was too much for Great Britain. Uh, so we do see these happening. Uh, a a baby-faced uh, fascist in Austria, for example. Uh, a less handsome, uh, bullish one in Hungary. Uh, they have widespread appeal. These are not uh, splinter uh, organizations or movements. Uh, they, they seem to have some momentum. Uh, I think the bigger question is, what will be the tipping point, and what will be the point that can reverse it? To that point, then, it's quite a depressing picture, but then certainly civic engagement, and what I'm speaking about in the UK, where we've had, I don't know, five, ten years of intense political engagement activism. We're looking forward to the recent elections because suddenly, it's kind of, just within two years, there's a massive extra youth vote not expect the election result that we got. What is left then if there is no civic engagement? Um, what successes, if any, or what programs historically can you say, okay, we also as civil society or engaged citizens or justice warriors, as you described, what are our other options here? Bearing in mind that all of the things that we're talking about fit into this conversation we're having about gender genocidal genocidal acts or genocidal moments in, in what happened in London, but it may be what becomes certainly events that have been fueled in this kind of vicious cycle for the last five ten years. Well, I don't think that those who are voting for fascism and voting for these kinds of leaders are primarily doing so because it gives them license to be fascists. There's an underlying anxiety that they're feeling. The manifestation of that 
might be fascism, it might be bigotry, it might be uh, this kind of hate. Uh, but it seems as though, unfortunately, those who are on the other side, those who will self-identify as progressives or whatever is the term du jour uh, that they want to use, they only seem to be responding and reacting to the, the hate, uh, which of course dominates so much. I mean, it really seems to suck the proverbial oxygen out of the room. By the time one gets done trying to fight that, there's really not too much energy left to get uh, beyond it. But it's important to find out what exactly are the anxieties, uh, to address them, to acknowledge them, and to actually have those conversations with, yes, even those who hate, to say, if you got your economic stability that you crave, would that then uh, be enough for you? Would it be enough for you if there was enough of your cultural space preserved, instead of them being fearful that they were somehow the other being uh, compelled to accept certain things which perhaps uh, are inimical to their religious cultural sensitivities. So the, the idea that it's not sharing space but the imposition of one modality or another. And by and large it seems as though those who have their fears allayed uh, will then find that the loudish behavior uh, of uh, the personalities that they're electing are deficient, that they don't really speak for them, uh, they don't want to be like them. Uh, if they can achieve what they really want with somebody uh, better haircuts, with, uh, uh, with better articulation and eloquence, uh, they'll go for that. Uh, in, in the United States, it would shock many, many people to know how many who voted for Trump in 2016 voted for Bernie Sanders in the primaries and also voted for Obama not once but twice. Uh, I had a, uh, a gentleman who uh, picked me up uh, in a car service to take me to an interview with CNN. Uh, when uh, one of the Democratic debates was being held in Detroit. And he was uh, probably in his late 60s, early 70s. Uh, he was retired from having a small business, and now he was uh, essentially a chauffeur as a second job uh, just to keep busy and uh, uh, to meet people, as he said. And uh, on the drive, I didn't betray any of my political views. Uh, because I didn't want to cloud his judgments. I think he was already assessing me as a South Asian, as it was. And it was fascinating because he himself uh, felt uh, as though he needed to explain himself. And he said that I, as I mentioned, uh, he had voted for Bernie Sanders in uh, the primary in 2016, and that he had voted twice without any hesitation for Obama. So clearly racism wasn't the main uh, litmus test for him. He said he just could not stand Hillary Clinton and the thought of having Hillary and Bill Clinton back in the White House uh, scared him to death. And he says that now I feel as though I have to vote for Trump again even though when I voted for him in 2016 I did so holding my nose. 
And he said it was because of what he felt was the mistreatment of the Supreme Court uh, nomination process for Brent Kavanaugh. He said it just was character assassination and that it was lacking decorum. It was a circus, which I thought was kind of ironic given the fact that every time Trump speaks, there's a certain circus-like atmosphere. But it was very candid and it was very, very uh, telling of not just a small group of uh, people in the United States. People who, those who consider themselves to be very civically engaged, by and large, uh, condescend to this group, uh, won't give them the time of day, uh, see them as being inferior. Uh, I thought it was very interesting that in the British election, one of the biggest indictments against Jeremy Corbyn, it seems, was beyond, of course, the uh, aspersions of anti-Semitism, was that he and Labour were too elite. They were too London. Uh, and that then uh, didn't sit well with uh, even some traditional Labour strongholds in rural areas. So it seems as though messaging uh, is very critical, that the way that those who are advocates how they engage uh, is not one that has the luxury to be done in the abstract, uh, to use terminology which alienates even further those who are uh, certainly well mobilized and who will feel no problem in voting for something that is against even their own interest, uh, even if it just means that they'll do so petulantly. So we're recording this in January 2020, and we've just passed the 18th anniversary of the opening of Guantanamo. And I wondered how you felt uh, Guantanamo had meaning at the time it opened or during the course of its life, whether it's still a relevant symbol of anything in the American discourse. Certainly here it was very impactful for a while, I think people have uh, internalized it and normalized it and forgot about it, actually, in, in many respects but also just in a wider kind of narrative about the so-called war on terror, but then historically things like the war on drugs and these kind of uh, endless theatres of permanent Well, Guantanamo, for those uh, who were concerned, still has relevance and resonance. The idea that, again, terminology means so much, and began by talking about genocide. In the case of Guantanamo, it was the impunity uh, by which uh, the executive branch in the United States could label someone an enemy combatant. And in doing so, uh, could go ahead and strip them of any kind of legal procedures, uh, particularly due process. Guantanamo represented something as odious as lock them away and throw away the key. Uh, you said that here people have pretty much forgotten about it. Uh, that was the entire intent behind Guantanamo, a place where the United States can offshore put people whom itself uh, may lack the kind of normal, conventional, and obligatory legal mechanisms, evidence, burdens of evidence and proof uh, 
uh, in order to prosecute them. I mean, the very idea that Guantanamo for the United States became uh, explicitly a place to circumvent its own laws uh, was, was absolutely shocking. Uh, and it unfortunately did become normalized. The fact that uh, perhaps as a result of Guantanamo, uh, we see other countries implementing uh, that same kind of structure, that same kind of impunity uh, when it comes to treatment of refugees. We see this happening in, for example, Australia. But also the idea that, uh, again, with a fairly long history of acting in this way, countries feeling the impunity to treat even its own citizens uh, outside the rule of law that those countries profess. This being the new line of demarcation as far as moving beyond the uh, rather reductive binary of uh, President Bush of who are the good guys and who are the bad guys, who are the good Muslims, who are the bad Muslims, to now looking at their own citizenry that what makes somebody good or bad could be a tweet. It could be a joke. So saying something that offends uh, President Trump by tweet uh, could then have severe recriminations. Uh, telling a joke about President Erdogan could have severe uh, implications, not just for the individual, but also given the prickly and insecure uh, personalities of some of these world leaders, the fact that they are willing to uh, mortgage long-standing geopolitical relationships, uh, for example, Turkey and Germany, uh, the United States with any number of countries, depending on who is the source of the tweet uh, when it comes to the current president. So it's a rather profound way of looking at, by concentric circles, how Guantanamo then has an impact on so many things beyond this just becoming some prison camp uh, that is immune to not only American law, but even international convention. Do you think that um, symbolism of Guantanamo um, as part of never-ending war is something that uh, could still be mobilized, if you like, um, well, if you look at Guantanamo, I think it's interesting to focus on uh, perhaps its origin. I mean, this is an area that was carved out from Cuba thanks to the Spanish-American War. Guantanamo represents not just a, a more recent uh, prison camp, it represents a colonial foothold. Uh, on the island of Cuba. This is America's sovereign territory, uh, except it's not, because American rule of law doesn't have to apply there, whereas American authoritarianism apparently can. And so this model of carving out quasi-sovereign spaces uh, under the guise of security, uh, under the guise of national interest, is a model uh, that I'm afraid uh, feeds into the perpetual nature of war, uh, the perpetual justification of imperialism, of colonialism, neo-colonialism, absolutely. Uh, and we're seeing this now happening with countries like China setting up archipelagos, artificial islands, 
uh, both in the Pacific Ocean and the Indian Ocean. Well, that's not going to be taken lightly. It is then just simply going to embolden others from usurping the sovereignty of uh, other countries in order to then go ahead and justify their positions there. Uh, at, at its easiest, it'll be a country saying, well, this is for our national interest. In its most venal, it'll be that uh, they're defending not only their own national interest, but charitably and magnanimously defending the national interest of those whose land is being usurped. Uh, there was the case, of course, of Diego Garcia, and uh, the courts deciding, well, the British really don't have the authority to uh, make decisions about it. Well, that's going to have profound impact on uh, American air bases there. Or the idea of uh, sovereignty within another country's borders, thanks to corporations. The fact that uh, the Iraqi parliament uh, passed a resolution saying that the United States Army should leave, uh, which any country has the right to go ahead and do so. And uh, President Trump says, if we leave, uh, we're cutting off aid to you, uh, including access to uh, your rather large sovereign uh, account at the Federal Reserve, which would further bankrupt Iraq, which would have implications on human rights and suffering, uh, which one hasn't seen in Iraq since uh, the time of the sanctions and the embargoes uh, between 1991 and 2003. So this kind of leveraging with impunity uh, seems to, again, go on in perpetuity. I think the uh, final point I wanted to make, and um, feel free to add any others as well, and it's a bit of a shameless plug, although forthcoming one will really be out by the time this podcast is out, a book which was talking about uh, these very themes of the neocolonialism and the American model of human rights reporting. Actually, what we've been talking about, we've been discussing, is not dressed up in the language of human but uh, actually things like Guantanamo, things like the kind of creation of parallel legal systems uh, or the, the time removal of them have actually been framed in a way that is somehow consonant with human rights and we do see that being uh, exported into these spaces as you said into the Bosnian uh, well, jurisdictions with no legal recourse really. But I just wondered if uh, you had a few final words really if you like tying up this uh, conflict, and you've, you've mentioned it already, that those who, of us, and I include myself in this, who call ourselves progressive, but at the same time, maybe struggle with uh, really calling out some of the worst abuses that are being uh, perpetrated in normative discourses. Perhaps one of the, I don't know whether to call it a blessing of President Trump, but certainly the fact that he doesn't really hold on to those kind of uh, masks or... Um, type of discourse. Uh, aside, there is still then uh, an oppositional framework of political language that will actually still perpetrate neocolonial practice as part of its policy. Any final things for you? Well, this is the fascinating aspect of Trump, and I suspect for the rest of the world, uh, Trump has simply served as an affirmation what they have felt about America and the projection of American power and the procedure by which America uh, projects its power. Uh, the idea of being brazen, the uh, idea of it being loudish, uh, the idea of it uh, uh, acting like a, a mafia thug, uh, any
anywhere outside the United States, uh, that seems to be taken as dictum. Within the United States, it is, of course, a contested issue. It's a contested issue not only uh, for those who are supporters of the president, for whom they are caught between this quagmire of American exceptionalism, uh, the kind of legitimacy that uh, uh, Trump brings to their idea about how America should be uh, and uh, is entitled to be, while at the same time they're still scratching their heads and saying, well, this isn't the civics lesson that I learned when I was in school, so how to reconcile those. And at the same time, uh, while those on the other side of the political aisle uh, will go ahead and say, yes, this is uh, exactly what we know about America, because we read Howard Zinn's The People's History of the United States, uh, we know that uh, it certainly has a far more checkered uh, past. It's still a real bitter pill to swallow to have uh, and to be part of a society that is that malign, that it's not just in the historical past, uh, but that it is a recurring trespass, it is a recurring violation. And as you mentioned before, the idea that uh, if this is uh, a perpetual war that America has to be uh, seen as leading, then it very much falls into the idea that it's not a colonialism of the past, but it is in fact a neo-colonialism, that uh, perhaps the only thing that has changed is some of the actors uh, with whom the United States is now competing, uh, but many of the architectures that it had established, uh, others are quick learners and in fact are using those templates in some cases against the U.S. itself. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, could you just, for our listeners, maybe tell them where they can find more of the things that you've written and indeed your podcast and any other recordings or speeches? Sure. Uh, you can always uh, find me at uh, Wayne State University at uh, wayne.edu. Uh, you can go to any of the podcast platforms or Google uh, Toledo Society 1400 OMG and find uh, the podcast 1400 OMG, your guide to what the hell happened in Muslim history. Thank you very much again, and thank you for everyone who's been listening, and uh, please do join us again.